Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. You can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SALead, Twitter, which is at NASPA SLPKC, Instagram, which is NASPA underscore SLPKC, and all of our webinars can be found on the Knowledge Community YouTube channel, which is NASPA SLPKC. My guest today is Megan Bautista. Megan is a recent graduate of Oberlin and former co-liaison of the Oberlin Student Senate. She played field hockey and softball for the university. And Megan was also the co-chair of Oberlin La Alianza Latinx. And recently, Megan was prominently featured in the New Yorker piece on Oberlin student activism, The Big Uneasy. Welcome, Megan. Hi, Miles. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for joining me today to talk about activist leadership. So before we get into our questions, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context about uh, about the piece, The Big Uneasy. So it's the most recent in a series of major, major, major publication articles to focus on college student activism. So, uh, Megan, uh, do you feel the piece, The Big Uneasy, is an accurate representation of activist leadership at Oberlin? Well... I feel like activism is so complex and multifaceted uh, that no amount of even the most thorough investigative jur journalism could do it justice. You know, Nathan's a great guy, but um, you know, I guess considering the the negative portrayals of Oberlin activists that have that have surfaced in the media as of late, um, you know, like the Atlantic and so on, um, Nathan's Nathan's piece was, I guess, you know, went above and beyond the expectations that I had. Um, but I, I guess. If I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I do take issue with some of the rhetorical strategies that he used in order to um, create a particular narrative around certain students from low-income backgrounds or who were transgender or what have you. Um, but I guess that's probably just to like appeal to his audience. It's the New Yorker after all. So. But I guess if I'm being honest, it felt sort of tokenizing, but mm. all in all, it wasn't necessarily an inaccurate portrayal. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh I expected as uh, uh, I expected as sort of I, I started reading through the piece that it it felt like it was going you know through some ground that had already been gone down yeah. by other by other publications and then it turned into you know I think a um, you know I, I totally agree I think that the the experience of activism is very very complex and every issue is also very complex but I was impressed with this particular piece by the uh, at least a, a more nuanced portrayal of the situation than I had seen in other places. So. Absolutely. I think there have been publications out from, you know, right-wing uh, media outlets who have called us muling infants. You know, that's a direct quote. So, mm. I mean, anything that portrays me in a positive light and, and my peers and the hard work that we've done in a positive light is something that I suppose I can accept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, just to sort of get a little bit of context about your experience there on campus mm -hmm. and your experience with activist leadership. So in in the piece, uh, Nathan Heller described the, event, the March 4th events of 2013 as yeah. being integral in your development as an activist. Could you discuss yeah. the impact of that? Uh, of those particular incidents on your role as an activist leader? Right. Well, just to, just to provide some more context, I guess, um, during March 4th, I know it's been covered in a lot of news sources, but uh, just, you know, from the horse's mouth, um, during the month of February leading up to March 4th, and I would probably even argue before my time, um, there were a, a string of hateful um, graffiti and, and hate mail and all sorts of actual like, physically violent attacks and attempts to intimidate and frighten um, communities at Oberlin. So these communities were you know, communities of color, black students, queer students, 
queer and black professors, and there were anti-Semitic issues going around as well, Um, just a lot of unsafe feelings. Um, And then it all sort of culminated in in March 4th, or the the night before March 4th, a black femme student who was um, on South Campus, where most of of our um, program housing um, for at-risk students, or like, I guess if you, like culturally specific um, housing is located, a black femme student saw what what, um, she believed was a an individual wearing KKK regalia walking across a quad and alerted the authorities immediately. Now, I wasn't there personally, but what I heard happened was, um, you know, there's a mix of stories. Uh, What I know for sure is that a lot of the students had to fight really hard in order to be heard. And that was sort of the, I guess, impetus of my active or, yeah, my activist leadership, I would say. Um, Like what happened during March 4th, brought some of the less enchanting aspects of Oberlin culture to the fore and put many students, I guess young and old, because I was only a sophomore at the time, but, and looking up to older uh, seniors and fifth years and things like that, um, it put us all in a position to be vocal about our experiences and our pain and our journey toward healing and recovery and how we were going to do that as a community. Um, like March 4th taught me specifically the importance of leaning into my vulnerabilities and confronting the ugly parts of, our rea- of my reality while being at Oberlin, the parts that I didn't want to engage with for whatever reason, like the fact that my friends, um, some of my friends didn't think that my fear was valid or that my favorite professor always expected survivors and people who were being discriminated against to turn the other cheek and be the bigger person or, you know, just kind of perpetuate this, this unju- injustice that we all have a sense of. Um, it was pretty much the reason that I found my voice and the power to call a spade a spade and hold my community and those around me to a higher standard, um, like a standard that respects my lived experiences and, and values my contributions. Um, and as I've gotten older, you know, there's been a push from me and my peers to recall March 4th. You know, this is, like you said, 2013, so three years later, uh, we want to ensure that it is preserved in our collective and institutional memory because it is something that is important in their history. You know, we can't just sweep that under the rug. There were there was fear, you know, and we try to we try really hard to sleep it under the rug. So I think my activist leadership is pretty much, you know, expose, unearth, and hold accountable style. Mm, yeah, 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 absolutely. So, uh, you know, just to kind of kind of build on uh, off of that uh, in the piece and sort of in our conversation in advance, uh, we discussed uh, you you coined the phrase there, millennial activism, um, and uh, just sort of wanted to think you know, sort of get your thoughts on, um, you know, you sort of uh, say that the March 4th events uh, sort of were, you know, integral in in, uh, in the movement uh, of millennial activism. So I, right. I kind of wanted your thoughts on what do you think character, uh, characterizes that movement? Right. Well, I think, I think for one, I definitely didn't coin it, but I, I use it heavily because I do think that there is a nuance that we have tapped into. Um, Mm -hmm. I think millennial activism, first and foremost, is merely a reincarnation of activist strategies for movements in the past, you know, the strategies that have thrived and survived across cultures and movements because they're powerful and empowering all at once. So to me, millennial activism, it it refuses to be silent, but rather, you know, it takes to a public forum such as Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter to unapologetically dissent from popular opinion, you know, and demand a more just world. And that has been done, but we didn't have Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr in the days of, you know, the civil rights movement. We had, you know, we took, we took to the streets. There were 
rebellions and things like that. And I'm not saying that we don't do that, but I think we engage in petite rebellions every day on our own Facebook when we challenge, you know, that friend from elementary school or our friend's dad who wants to vote for Trump or, you know, what have you. I think uh, millennial activism harnesses the powers of social networking as, as, a, as a tool of learning, as an epistemological tool that we can use to make information and knowledge and therefore power and empowerment more accessible to our own communities and to people that we know personally, but also to a much greater, more vast population that we might never even interface with. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, um, so you were the co-liaison for three semesters at Oberlin, is that correct? Yes, three semesters. I served on Senate for four. Wow, yes. That's, that's a, yeah, I don't play around. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good run there. So uh, yeah. what outcomes from your activist leadership are you most proud of? Uh, well, I guess my activist leadership really comes from my experiences as a low-income and first-generation student of color at Oberlin and my experience is navigating the treacherous college environment, you know, of today, the one that, you know, rakes you over the coals, it's costs an arm and a leg, has super high demands, and what seems like low returns on that investment. Um, but I guess a lot of um, financial expenses were creeping up on me, like athletic equipment, and, you know, I got a period every month that I have to pay for menstrual products to take care of. Uh, I need textbooks, I need travel arrangements back to Washington State where my family relocated after my junior year and so on, you know, just things that would pile up. And they were all detracting from my ability to focus on my schoolwork and also draining on my mental health, obviously. Um, and I noticed that some of my peers, my, my white peers, my peers who have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who graduated from college um, and, and, you know, well-off peers, had a much easier time navigating college and focusing on their studies because, you know, they came from a class background that ensured that these expenses that I mentioned were never going to be a, a primary concern. It was never going to be at the forefront of their mind. You know, they could focus on whatever else. So the creation of a, a support fund, which we know as the Student Support Initiative Fund, was a battle well fought, in my opinion, um, as it established like a six-figure fund. I guess it's probably less than that. No, it should be still six figures. I don't know how many students have used it, but... Uh, when it was established, it was about $750,000 of a fund um, for at-risk students, so students from low-income backgrounds, students of color, students who are first-generation, international students, dis students with disabilities. And it also opened up um, a bunch of uh, new services for mental health services or new funds for mental health services. Um, and I guess it also engaged students and administrators in a conversation, a greater conversation about systemic change and how we must redefine financial aid and support as something that goes beyond just providing financial, you know, tuition assistance. Um, and then I guess that was, that was probably my major um, accomplishment, or I feel like one of the major accomplishments of the Senate that I was on. We did a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, I think there was an issue when I was an underclassman in which I needed access to Plan B, the emergency contraception pill, um, over a weekend and, and free because I'm broke. Um, <laughs> But our student health facilities were closed, and they're the only facility that provides access to this service for free. You know, we could go to CVS or we could go to the Cleveland Clinic, but that would not be free at all. Um, so we encouraged the administration and the facility, the student health, to open on weekends and make these services more accessible to folks who might need them outside of, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, and recognize that it is, you know, imperative that we keep providing these things at no, co no cost at all. Um, 
And then I guess lastly, um, I'm, really, I'm super proud of this because I've actually seen it sort of um, roll along and come to fruition. Um, but back my junior year, I guess, maybe my senior year, because I did five years, so it all is a blur. But <laughs> um, a few friends and I uh, had to stay behind on campus during fall and spring break. And um, we were pretty dismayed to see that our dining halls were closed. Like there are three dining halls on campus. Like at least one of them could have stayed open, but they all were closed. Um, and we felt that this was indicative of an assumption on the institution's part that all students could afford to travel home or away from campus during these short, like, week-long vacations. Like, I can't afford to go back to Washington State for a week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so through a partnership between the local faith community, so a bunch of churches from different denominations in Oberlin, as well as the Office of Community Governance and Student Senate, we brought free hot meals, grocery giveaways, sandwich bars, and pizza parties to students who remained on campus during these breaks. And all, like I said, it's for free. Um, And the program has been successfully running for one year, and I'm really proud to see everybody invested in ensuring that the program remained functional for years to come. Mm -hmm. So that's, like, probably the biggest one, you know, just watching everybody smash their face into some pizza is really (laughs) rewarding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, I mean, what a... What a legacy to leave behind, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, can you tell me? So, I, during your introduction, I introduced you as the uh, co-liaison and not the president of the student senate. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, can you sort of provide some background on the title co-liaison and sort of what you, you know, you think that that unique title uh, represents for Oberlin? Sure. So, for one, I don't know if Oberlin ever had a president of the student body. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's a class president, which is different from they do have, they do uh, fundraising and things for a senior gift. Um, but the student student government, I don't think we've ever had a president per se. We've always had just one liaison. So, what's mm-hmm. unique now that I've um, since I've been in office, and that's a weird way to put it, since I've been on Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, we create, we pretty much uh, took the bylaws in a very sketchy fashion and, and rewrote them to create a, um, a shared liaison position, so a shared leadership position on Senate. Um, and I'll just say that uh, the student government leadership in the past before me was not necessarily uh, deemed trustworthy or effect, you know, as, a, as an effective leader or effectively representing or advocating for the entirety of, like, Oberlin's diverse student body's needs. Um, and so we created the co-liaison position in order to have a leader who, I guess, knew more about how to deal with the bureaucratic red tape and, and navigate the institution and, you know, all of the uh, administrative tasks that we had to do. And then we had a leader who actually knew the issues at hand, who, who could represent students who were coming from the, these marginalized backgrounds. Um, I won't say that the position was created for me or anything, but anybody on Senate kind of knows the truth. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just had to. I had to sort of rise to leadership. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. So something that I've uh, thought about a lot recently is that I think uh, historical narratives often portray activist leadership through the lens of solitary leaders. So you have your Martin Luther Kings, your Gandhis. And recent activist movements have, uh, have abandoned this approach really in, in favor of collectivist leadership. And you can see this very clearly through the Black Lives Matter movement, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, both of those you know, national scale movements really intentionally 
uh, sought out, you know, we are not, you know, represented by a single voice. We are represented by, you know, this entire movement. Um, so which approach did you all take at Oberlin and, and why? Yeah, we definitely took a collectivist approach, definitely. Um, throughout my time at Oberlin, student organizations have, have pushed to form cross-cultural collaborations and act in solidarity with injustices throughout the college. So that's looked like the Asian American Alliance, or AAA, writing a letter in solidarity with black our black student union, or known as ABUSWA. Um, it also looks like ABUSWA demanding that the college divest, boycott, and sanction certain companies that benefit from the genocide and occupation of Palestine in their letter of grievances or letter of demands to the, to the administration. So you see a lot of these like, collaborations happening, and, and solidarity has really been redefined into, you know, I think it, it might be a Gandhi quote, it might be an MLK quote. I'm not really about that whole historic, you know, first or historic one great man narrative, but I know one great man, one person, once said that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere or something to that effect, and that I think Oberlin, um, Oberlin activists have really taken that to heart. Okay, great. So you were also a student athlete at Oberlin and played, played two sports. Um, mm-hmm. What impact do you think that that experience had on you as an activist leader? Um, well, for one, I think that uh, Oberlin College Athletics, and I'm sure that this is, you know, unanimous among any athletic program at any college, they pretty, they pretty intensely discourage you from engaging in any facet of the college life outside of athletics. So you can, you know, you can go volunteer at the local old folks home, but you have to do that, you know, while you're wearing your, like, Oberlin College gear, athletics gear. You know, they really want to make sure that you are a representative of the athletic community, and then anything that's sort of in tension with that is discouraged. Um, so I think while students were wanting to engage in, like, the hands-up-don't-shoot protests that were happening when I was a senior, so two years ago, um, the athletic department was pretty silent and silenting. Um, but I will also say that just from, you know, my personal experience being on a team, being on two different teams with two different needs, um, and, and environments, I'd say that I was exposed to a lot of sexism um, and queerphobia um, institutionally, not like necessarily among my teammates or my coaches, but, you know, the fact that um, like men's, you know, the football program or a lot of men's programs would receive um, better accommodations than women's programs. It got to the point where we were pretty close to filing a Title IX grievance, you know, and this is in 2014, 15 when this happened. So, you know, that's, I think that's saying something about how far and, and how little um, progress, I guess, institutions have made when it comes to addressing these concerns. Um, but, yeah, I think, it, you know, it was just a, it was a microcosm of, of every other environment at Oberlin and, you know, petty, petty gossip, petty issues and, and institutional ones as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh a question that, and, a, and a thought that kept coming up for me uh, in in uh, the Big Uneasy, the article, um, that, uh, you know, I, I felt like Heller was really, uh, that Nathan Heller was really talking about this, but he didn't use this phrase. So uh, do you feel that the expectation of activist leadership is a form of cultural taxation? Uh, definitely. Ab- absolutely, yeah. Um, and I do think that Nathan was trying to touch on this um, when he mentioned that, um, the only reason that I would ever engage in student senate was because I could have, I had the opportunity to get paid for my activism, if you will. Um, but 
I think that the, um, well, yeah, for one, students aren't being paid for the work that they do to improve the college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you think about the fact that positions are created to do this that are professional, they get, I don't know how many figures a year, but, you know, it's really not the job of a student who's taking a full, you know, 18-plus credits and participating in whatever other extracurriculars who's also dealing with mental health issues because college environments are, you know, a breeding ground for mental health distress. Um, it's not on us to, to be making the, these great strides and making these changes um, and making our, our school a better place. It should be on administrators. It should be on alumni. It should be on, it should be more of, you know, if anything, it should be more of a collective group effort as opposed to just, you know, the students have grievances and they need to, you know, they're going to take care of it. You know, everything is left to us. Um, and, you know, just because we mentioned uh, March 4th earlier, I think it's really pertinent to say that it was all of the students' work. It was the RAs in Africana, Africana Heritage House. It was black students in Abuswa. And, and it was just these students who were responsible for pushing the administration to cancel classes on March 4th and give us a time as a community to reflect and, and grow and strategize moving forward from that event. And it had nothing to do with, you know, a great man, whatever, whoever, mm-hmm. administrator, taking um, ultimate control of the situation and deciding, you know, just himself or themselves that they were going to cancel classes. It was, they put up an immense fight, and students really fought and put their, you know, they, they wore their hearts on their sleeves. They were vulnerable in these moments saying, we're scared. We don't, you know, I'm willing to, to learn, and I'm, I would love to learn. I love learning, and I love Oberlin, but this is not okay, and I can't do that in this way. You know, and I think to, to just put that truth out there and even in the face of people who, who were looking at you like you had 15 heads um, is really brave and indicative of that cultural taxation that you're, that you're tapping into. Uh, we're often the ones who do the brunt of the work. And like I said, if I didn't get paid for Student Senate, there's no way in hell that I would be trying to do the work that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that for sure, but, you know, getting paid is, is really important. It, it, it incentivizes people from my background to engage with these these issues and and try to make the college a better place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so now we're going to transition to a regular segment that we have uh, called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask Megan a uh, big, arbitrary, silly question and uh, and try to limit and try to limit you to 30 second responses. So that's that's the okay. goal. Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't really have the disposition to be someone to call time. So, you know, if you go a little long, we'll be okay. Um, okay. So, uh, what, uh, what book would you say most influences how you think about leadership? Uh, I'll just say the book that I've been reading right now, which is Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. Um, I also read Our Prisons Obsolete back in the day um, during a, in, a, in a class that I took about um, – Black incarceration and that, these two texts, this woman, oh my goodness, Angela Davis, she just constantly packs a punch in terms of just opening your mind's eye to how you need to constantly question and redefine activism and solidarity and struggle and freedom. Mm. So I would say her, or uh, La Frontera by Gloria Anzaldúa, that's a classic, and I love that book. Okay, great, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually used to work um, in a part of Birmingham that uh, that Angela Davis grew up in, which is kind of oh my neat. god, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I uh, would definitely uh, pay money, pay some good money to walk those streets and just be like around her vibes. 
Yeah, her. Uh, yeah, the neighborhood that she grew up in, I think, really, um, you know, unfortunately because of the time was was called Dynamite Hill, and that area is on the west side of Birmingham, which is a right. which is a a really a really fascinating place now. Um, so if you would if you would like a really uh, a really uh, classic example of gerrymandering, you should just look at the way that uh, look at the way that Birmingham, Alabama, has been uh, yeah. has been laid out. So yeah, jeez. So, you played multiple sports at the collegiate level. What teammate would you say is the best leader um, that you? Oh my God! That you're with. Wow, that is a huge question. What teammate? Of <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna upset some people. <laughs> um, I will just say that uh, when I came in as a freshman, you know, just just transitioning into um, being a sophomore on field hockey, being a senior on field hockey, et cetera, et cetera. There has always just been. Um, somebody older than me that has showed me the way. Um, so I'll just say that all of my teammates who have, who just showed me that I would survive, you know, two a day practices, um, you know, injury, just the examples that were set for me. Um, everybody pretty much was great. So mad, mad love to all of my teammates. Sorry, I can't pinpoint one of you. I'm really not trying to get into any issues. I love you, Cindy. Okay. Great. <laughs> all right. Sure. That that's a, that was a solid non-answer. Very diplomatic of you. <laughs> I had to remain, you know, objective. You seemed like a a, a three a three-term co-liaison there. So. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, okay. So, uh, what moment from pop culture would you say inspires you? Oh man. Um, God, my knee jerk is to say something super inappropriate, but I won't. Um, I will say. <laughs> Do you remember when uh, Beyonce performed Formation for the first time during the Super Bowl, I believe it was? Yeah. And she had, like, this quick slip-up where she almost fell. Mm-hmm. And then, by the grace of God, and Beyonce only could do this, she, like, managed to, like, come down on the downbeat and, like, make it look like it was part of the choreography. And just, you know, she, like, worked with it. And I think that was, that moment is super iconic for me because I am a disaster um, and I lack grace and poise. Um, so watching her sort of recover from that uh, was really <laughs> was a great moment and an inspirational one at that. Well, uh, if you are ready to have your mind blown, I've only asked that question one other time on this podcast. And do, yeah. do you know what the answer was? No, was it really that moment? Not necessarily when she fell down, but it was the performance of Formation at the Super Bowl. So wow. that is pretty amazing. That's- yeah, I guess it really, you know, packs a punch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you'd like to talk about that sometime, Eleanor Landis, who uh, who uh, works at Duke, would be a great person to to really uh, geek out about Beyonce. Oh yeah. With, so. Eleanor, you can hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So our final segment is a uh, is a little game uh, we call Higher Ed: Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide Megan with two true stories from Higher Ed current events and one lie. And Megan's going to have to try to parse out that lie. So our theme this week is financial controversy. Oh wow! Always a always a hot topic. Okay, so <laughs> well, uh, so your first option is Northeastern University recently gained attention for a donation drive, where a contribution to the institution would enter the donor into a drawing for a one thousand dollar payment towards that donor's student loans. Whoa! So uh, that's one option. Another option is that Keene University in New Jersey recently violated state rules by purchasing a $250,000 Chinese-made coffee table 
without oh. going through a competitive <laughs> bidding process. Dean, <laughs> why would so, you do that? Okay, that, continue. Sorry. That's another option. And then your final option is that Vanderbilt University recently made national news for intentionally excluding sex reassignment surgery from student health plans. Oh, my God. So um, those are your three options. So we've got Northeastern, we've got Keene, and we've got Vanderbilt. Okay, so uh, this is hard. It's too true. So one of them isn't true for sure because I would believe them all, honestly. Um, <laughs> one of, so of two of them are true. One of them right. is a lie. Yep. One of them is a lie. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I really, really it's, – it saddens me, but I think that the intentional exclusion of gender or sex reassignment surgery at Vanderbilt is just um, – like I totally believe that that's what happened. Um, so I'm going to say that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that Northeastern's raffles are also true. I'm going to say that the $250,000 coffee table is a lie. Okay, so uh, you were correct. Northeastern is true. Um, so that uh, that um, donation drive, which I think uh, Inside Higher Education would say was made in poor taste, uh, and, uh, and several alums would also agree, um, that was true. Um, and Keene University did purchase a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar conference oh my table God. without really going through a competitive bidding process. Vanderbilt uh, actually um, intentionally included sex reassignment surgery in their student health plans. So okay. yeah, so uh, so that Pleasant one, surprise. you know, the the game I normally play here is by trying to find something that is uh, that is partially true and then just you know. Oh tweaking it there. So they uh, included sex reassignment surgery in their student health plans, I think, starting next academic year. Well, that's awesome. Good for them. Good for Vanderbilt and really boo Keen. Keen, that's <laughs> really silly. I don't know what their tuition costs, but they could probably help a lot of kids out. So should probably re-envision how that money could be better spent. Really, a coffee table? So it's a conference table, not a coffee oh, that's, table. Okay. Well, that's, I feel like that's worse. Like, anyway, I'm just, I'm I'm a little frustrated, but it's okay. I don't have a great read on the going rate for, like, a really, you know, impressive conference table. That's Um, so much money. Like, what the hell? How much were the people who made that table even paid? You know, like, that's... I feel like you're really getting getting down to the, the kernel of, the kernel of the issue. I was just kind of amazed by, you know, it's a big number. So, uh, right, exactly. Well, count on me for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, so that is the end of our program. Thanks to everyone for joining the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Megan Bautista for joining me today and for her brave work driving us all towards a more equitable world. So, thanks, Megan. Thanks again, Miles. Sure. And uh, you can get more information about the knowledge community, again, on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And all of our webinars, which we do every month, can be found on the Knowledge Community YouTube channel, which is NASPA SLPKC. And uh, if you're interested, you can submit questions to be answered on the next podcast at naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. And Finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear more about your programs. So please shoot us an email at naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.